Welcome to On Strategy Showcase. This is Fergus in Chicago. Uh, today we talk with Paula Bloodworth, who is Global uh, Group Strategy Director on the Nike business, responsible for the brand globally. And uh, Paula has worked in a number of different places around the world, which she'll tell us about. So it's really interesting to hear about the commonalities in terms of popular culture and the distinctions that a brand like Nike has to navigate as it markets uh, messages around the world. Uh, Paula was the lead strategist on the uh, brilliant campaign, Nothing Beats a Londoner. So we're going to talk about uh, the formative strategy behind that, how they got to it, and what ultimately inspired the formation of that idea. And then we're going to talk about uh, the year that Nike had in 2020. Uh, we're going to talk about the role that that a sports brand plays in a year when there are no sports. And so uh, I hope you'll enjoy it. One thing I wanted to mention, uh, I've been getting emails recently uh, about my website and uh, people are asking, uh, you know, who designed or, or, you know, some even asked if I actually designed it, which of course I didn't. Uh, but the guy that did, I wanted to give him a plug because he was fantastic to work with. Uh, and his name, he goes by the, the, the name Blue-Eyed Barbarian. You can you can uh, connect with him. His name is Dennis. Terrific guy, terrific to work with, and uh, I, I highly recommend him. Uh, you can reach him at blueeyedbarbarian.com. And to think he didn't even pay me for that plug, but I hope he's over there in Europe uh, applauding me for doing this right now. Uh, terrific guy. So here's my conversation with Paula Bloodworth. This is sort of episode number two on Nike, because for those who are interested, if you go back to the website on strategyshowcase.com, um, you can listen to the first episode and see the creative work associated with the first episode on Nike, which was with uh, Andy Lindeblade uh, out of the uh, Widening Kennedy Portland office also. So here's Paula Bloodworth, a terrific conversation about the year that Nike had. Enjoy. So welcome, Paula. Great to have you here. I'm thrilled to have you as part of the show. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Um, so you, you're, now in, uh, you're now in Portland, uh, working on heading up the Nike business as Global Group Strategy Director. Um, you've experienced sort of Nike, or, or widened culture in various parts of the world. How would you describe Wyden's approach to planning? Everybody wants to understand it. And, you know, we did we did an episode with Andy Lindblade and we, we kind of delved in it somewhat and that was a very popular episode. But I'd love to hear your perspective on it. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I'm probably going to say similar things to Andy is, is really there aren't processes or, or tools or like circles and diagrams there are no like keys to planning at widening kennedy the the thing that really keeps us humming the north star is is having a point of view on culture um and and really understanding you know how we can find a role for brands in culture and actually say something provocative or interesting so that we actually add to culture rather than steal from it i guess i've worked in a couple of the offices now and depending on the head of planning you have in the moment, they all have a slightly different interpretation, but it is sort of the same in every market. It's like find something that people care about, that you're saying something in a new way and, and you know, what is that point of view? And, you know, attaching to that the authenticity of the brand because you can always say something interesting, but is it is it relevant? Is it authentic to the brand? And and I think that second part of that is, is one of the most important things going forward. And the last year has taught us that, that, your, the brand has to earn its right to say something. Um, it has to be authentic. It has to feel um, natural to the brand um, in order to have that that 
provocative point of view in culture that gets people to, to notice and listen to you? I think more so than ever, there's a lot of commonalities in terms of global culture. Uh, but there's got to be distinctions, too, that you've got to be sort of cautious about. So is culture in Asia different than culture in in Europe, for example? And does does the brand have to speak a little differently in those markets? I, absolutely. I And this is one of the favorite parts of my job. And and the last, you know, living in, in China and, and London, it it I really got to enjoy that process. And it, it did change according to where you were. So every market has a very different relationship with sport and there are very different stages and that's constantly in flux. Uh, but I, I'd say that's where the good stuff comes from. And and if I'm completely honest, having worked at, at Global now, it's a bit tougher to do the global briefs. You know, you've, you the global big ads, um, you have to find something interesting that everyone is attracted to and can relate to, but it still says something provocative. But when you're in those markets, you can really lean into what's happening in the lives of athletes, in you know what's happening in local culture and city culture, um, and there's so much texture and richness that you can really pull and lean into. Um, and and I think China was the biggest learning experience for me. I I rocked up to Shanghai. I'd never been to China. Um, it was my first time, you know, in Shanghai, and I was starting a new job and was expected to to steer the strategic vision of of Nike greater china um and rob campbell was my boss at the time and and love him and he's a, a close friend of mine and i remember him saying you're walking in with two hands tied behind your back this is not going to be easy and it was then um i realized that the slogan of Wyden and kennedy or one of them one of the many ones uh, that's i think it's in the foyer of london walk in stupid was was the three words that i i really had to embrace but relying on my local planners became everything. Um, Leon Lin, Karina Huang were my planners at the time. And, and I had I felt very stupid for, for a long time, but I just stayed open and listened to them because they they knew these athletes and they knew um, their city and their country. Um, so yeah, it was important to listen to them and, and understand how planning and the strategies and the briefs all need to feel in touch with those local markets and and that attitude and that you know um, learning experience certainly helped when I moved to London because the first brief I got uh, were on day one I think was was Londoner um, and I once again had not worked in London and didn't know you know local culture and had to um, learn pretty quickly to, to try and understand it. It takes amazing courage to go in to a market where you're not familiar with the culture, whether it's in Shanghai, whether it's in London. Um, God knows enough of us feel like imposters anyway. Yeah. But how, how, do you, how do you approach it? And are, are you left to your own devices because that's sort of um, having a clean sheet of paper uh, is, is an advantage? Are you, are you left to sort of delve in and come up with a perspective or are you coached? when you get there? Like, did, did Rob coach a little bit or did he not? Did he let it be? Uh, a bit of both. I, he certainly coached because that's Rob. I think anyone who knows him, he can't resist but to help. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> he, uh, it, it was also on me to, like, ask the question. And I tried to read as much as I possibly could. I tried to say yes to every, you know, opportunity to learn. And I got it wrong, you know, like, uh, and I put my foot in it. I was probably culturally really insensitive a lot of times, but, but I certainly learned fast and, and I just keep going back to the people, you know, I, I always tried to invite in 
opinion and conversation and and asked everyone not just the planners but everyone in the office and friends and um and as I said I, I don't think I got it right in the beginning but but by the end I started to go this is this is the approach I need of, of actually just crowdsourcing um you know uh, information and knowledge and experience to help me get to these points of view that actually feel um, authentic. So was language a barrier in terms of being able to engage with locals or with local amateur athletes or elite athletes? Yes. Was that an issue? God, I can only imagine. Yeah, yeah it was. Uh, it was super interesting, though, because sometimes language unlocked something. And the, a translation or a or a way of saying something like these things were insights too, you know, like they unlocked a way of looking at the culture. And I, I just remember going like, how would you translate this? And I'd be like, it doesn't translate, but here is how we might interpret that. And there would be this like um, saying or expression or way of looking at it. And I was like, wow, that's so interesting. And I, and I think having that outside of perspective probably helped as well, you know, of not, of not, knowing things so well that I could actually see them with a fresh view and, and bring them to light in, in some instances. Tell us if you could, even with an example, if possible, like the difference between sports culture in, in China in Shanghai and in other parts of the world, is there a difference in the passion? Is it in difference between what, what is wanted from that experience, who the idols are? Is there a difference? Yeah. I mean, it, it's a really big topic and, and I feel like a bit of an imposter talking about it too much because I was there such a long time ago and culture changes so fast. You know, that's one thing about with China is like I was there however many years ago and I feel like it would be a completely different place. That's how amazing that culture is. But when it came yeah. to sport, um, yeah, it, it was constantly trying to um, celebrate the importance of sport because it, it, the education system doesn't necessarily – um, value sport in the same way, I guess, even just personally growing up in Australia, you know, it, it, it wasn't part of the curriculum. It's very, very much about studying, but um, they're going through revolution with sport and it is really um, inviting in health and well-being and showing the joy and importance of sport for development, for character, for confidence, for all those things. But actually, um, yeah, just just trying to see the fun and joy of sport versus you know the opposite side of which is in China is the you know the elite system of of you have to be great if you want to do it you have to be incredible like competition is fierce everywhere so there was you know if you did do sport sometimes there was so much pressure to be the best and to be the the next Linar um, so we just tried to find the the soul of sport a lot of the time and a lot of it was yeah finding the joy and pleasure and magnificence of sport for everyday athletes so it's almost like the voice of the athlete in india is probably different than the voice of the athlete in london and or in the u.s but yeah nike that's the that's the sort of the filter for nike it's always the the voice of the athlete right it, it is it is always the voice of the athlete they're, they're the keys you know that everywhere you go um it's always staying true to the athlete and understanding that because they'll take us into the right places. They'll keep us tight to culture. They'll keep yeah. us relevant and interesting and, and make sure they lead us in the right way. So you understand them, you understand everything. Um, and yeah, you always end up with, with provocative, culturally interesting work that people care about. So that takes us to uh, one of my favorite spots from the last couple of years was, which is a nothing beats a Londoner. And, and I mean, talk about original 
that um, that film, it wasn't even a spot because, I mean, it was far more than that. Uh, that film and the components of that film were pretty amazing. Can you can you tell us, like, where does that start? At that point, you were in London, right? Yes, yeah. Um, day one, I had to skip uh, orientation and get the brief handed onto my desk on, on day one with, you know, now, now we need to connect with London. Um, so, yeah, it was... Gosh, it was such a big journey and I look back on it so fondly, but in the moment there were some very big highs and lows, but it was, um, yeah, it, it started relying on my partners once again. Like everything I learned in China of, of listen to people who know it, um, I tried to bring to London and here I felt like I got it be- got it right <laughs> or at least better than probably what I did in Shanghai. And yeah, it is understanding uh, the people who live and breathe it. And I, Got to work with um, Tarek at On Road, um, a, a company there, and he he's a research company, and they really understood London. Like he's a Londoner, he knows these kids, he's friends with them, and so I I mined all the research that was you know had already been done and was still in the process of happening, and tried to meet as many kids as possible, um, listen to the transcript scripts, um, you know, just did everything I possibly could to you know just gorge myself on information i guess um and we about, didn't about stop what? Rec- what were you what were you what were you trying to what were you exploring specifically definitely their relationship with sport um their relationship with nike um how they approach sport but also you know how sport fits into their broader lives and what what they were experiencing what were their challenges what were they going through how did sport help them or not help them what were you know what were their perceptions of sport at that time who did they look up to um and then also media as well like what what were they into what did they follow like i remember when we first researched house party was everywhere and we were getting so excited about ideas on house party and then three weeks later because we kept (laughs) researching we didn't stop they were like wow you have shown your age house party is is just so lame so it it just happened so fast (laughs) you know um, but yeah, everything. And, and, you know, I will say we didn't stop either. Like we just kept talking to these kids as much as possible. And it wasn't just the research partner. It was me. It was sending my account team out. It was doing like beautiful mind walls of like what they're into, what gigs are they going to, how they talk, like what, what sayings are interesting. Like they would call us out on language all the time. Like we would put scripts in front of kids and they would laugh at us and rewrite it in a way um and it was that kind of relationship and back and forth that i think really helped the work in the end we so rarely get to go so deep um and and really just enjoy the city and thankfully we had clients that were like we just want to connect with london like you don't not that we want to alienate the rest of the country or the world but our the importance is really um you know valuing these kids and, and connecting with them Share with us some of the initial thinking, because I know there was this unlock that that uh, that bubbled up around a specific incident. So I'm curious, were you initially as a team, were you guys trying to, were you kind of struggling to find a really tight idea uh, over a period of time, or was it was it um, was it relatively easy to get to a sharp sort of point of view on the voice? Uh, it's. it was easy and hard it was very it was a crazy process um and I will say we wrote the brief fairly quickly 
and we had a general intention. So we wrote the point of view. We had guardrails of how we wanted to behave. And and just to talk a little bit about the insight before I get to that kind of unlock moment was how impressed the how impressive these kids were. You know, they they had some of them had really tough upbringing. Some of them, you know, were going through all sorts of stuff, but. It, it sort of wasn't the point. No matter what challenge was put in front of them, their attitude to everything was, you can't beat me. You know, like, I cannot lose. And and they had this just lovely cheekiness to them. Like, I just wanted to hang out with them all day. They were just awesome all the time. And and the creatives coined it, I think, um, joyful resilience. Tom Bender and talk, Tom Corcoran, most incredible creatives, um, you know, got us to this, this attitude and... Um, joy I think but yeah it was that inside of like these kids don't let anything beat them and that was a lot like elite athletes of all my research with um you know athletes and reading biographies and being you know in the Nike world I was like these kids from age 14 15 16 think like elite athletes they just don't let anything bring them down and and so therefore we were like they need to be the heroes of this sport spot they need to be the ones that we raise up and you know Nike totally were with us on that um, Jamie McCall and, and Phil Jacobson at the time, you know, really believed in that kind of model too. But even though we got to that brief and we sort of knew what we wanted to say and we had a point of view and we were getting good ideas, nothing felt quite it yet. And it didn't feel like we bottled that energy in the perfect way. And, and how do you know that? How do you, is that, is that because there isn't a high enough level of excitement in the room? Is that when you feel, I mean, how do you know when you've got it or how do you know that you don't have it? <laughs> oh, it's such a good question. I, sometimes you think you've got it and then the client's like, you don't got, you don't have it. <laughs> you go, you know, no, we, we don't, we, <laughs> we don't have it. Um, so that, it, that it, I, God, I remember when we did have it, everyone in the room was like, oh my gosh, we've got it. So you keep thinking you do. And then, it's not until you actually have it, you, you know, but I don't, I don't know if there is a simple answer to that question. Everyone had such a high creative benchmark as well, including our client um, at Nike, you know, like everyone has such a good feel for this brand and knows what it should say in their bones. Like we don't test. I think everyone knows that. Um, so it is feeling. And, and when we get it right, I don't know, everyone just kind of lights up in the room. So when you look at London and you look at the work, there's a clear recognition through the work that that London is a bunch of neighborhoods, just like New York is, just like Chicago is, and that each neighborhood is like its own city upon itself. Was 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 it was it your goal to sort of originally was it your were you thinking, God, we have to find we have to find, well, you do have to find a commonality amongst all these various areas of London, uh, for example, but. Was that was that um, what brought it all together in terms of that spot, or was it was it something you were sort of fearful of that it might fragment? Because it's being a Londoner in one part of the city is different than a Londoner in, a, in another part. Oh, very good question, and you just uncovered one of the ideas that died. To be honest, <laughs> we, we did have an area around every part of London's different, you know, um, but but we knew that was wrong because we did want to find something that united them and it wasn't a place or where you're from it was this this spirit you know like this thing that all these kids had uh in spades you know and and their ambitions were just like ridiculously high and we loved them for it like uh, and that united them all uh and it was as i said before it was that athlete kind of insight of like i am going to achieve what i want to achieve and nothing is going to stop me i don't care if you tell me i'm going to get it wrong i'm going to come back fighting 
Um, so that is, we wanted to unite, you know, London. As I said, we, we weren't necessarily thinking about the rest of the world or the country. We didn't want to alienate it, but we just wanted to champion that kind of universal spirit of what it means to be a Londoner. So let's talk about the part that sort of uh, unlocked everything for you, which was, which was around the, uh, uh, the London terrorist attack. Can you talk about that and what, what, uh, what that unlocked for you personally and for creative development? We had the brief locked on uh, early and we sort of knew what we wanted to say, but we'd gone through so many rounds that we felt like we'd explored so many areas and everything was sort of just merging into one. And it just felt uh, we couldn't kind of break through. And there was a moment that happened and that was the London terrorist attacks. And um, it rocked London, obviously, for all, for all those reasons. And it there was a picture that came out that I remember seeing in the news and it was, and I don't know if anyone remembers this, but there was a, a guy fleeing from um, the terrorist attacks and he had a beer in his hands and the, the media picked up on it. So he was running away from the terrorist attack with a beer in his hands. I think a lot of people outside of maybe London or I should say the UK were like, didn't really understand it. You know, like, why would you be protecting your beer? But the reaction from everyone in London was like, yes. <laughs> That's uh, right. <laughs> yes. Do not leave your phone behind, but don't leave your beer. Yeah. Same, exactly. in, same in Dublin. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, and, and London is just like, and everyone really in the UK gravitated to that. And this, was this just like, cheeky spirit that was like no matter what happens no matter how great the tragedy you can't you can't beat that spirit and and that was just like a kind of an interesting moment and I looked at these kids I was like these kids are the epitome of this spirit you know like and that's the thing we need to be celebrating and and you know went through all this writing and and the thing that really shone through was a line I wrote, nothing beats London, and wrote a manifesto around it, talked to the creatives about it, and it just had the energy <clears throat> and the cheekiness and the the swagger. I know that word is overused, but it, it did have that kind of um, feeling to it that we knew it needed to be in the work. So that was where the line, um, that's, so overall, so writing, you know, the line, nothing beats a Londoner, uh, stayed with it and we thought it was just going to be a strategy line for a while um, we tried to beat it and the creators are like I this is it you know this is this is the thing that that feels right um, and then not long after that the we cracked the final work uh, and it was that moment where we're like we think we've got it and <laughs> we had it and and yeah it went on from there I love it so was when when all the create the creative process had been ongoing did and was the line sort of Nothing beats a Londoner. Sort of the line that packed it all together was like the packaging that made everything else make sense, or was it a line that inspired a whole new set of directions that you ultimately ended up at? I, I couldn't say definitively either way, to be honest. But I, I do, I do feel like there was a trigger, a, a turning point where, yeah, yeah there, there were lots of ideas on the table, but we hadn't, we didn't have the big film. You know, like we didn't have that. Well, I shouldn't say film, but the the idea behind Nothing Beats a Londoner. So after that everything did fall in line and then all the ideas we'd had along the way suddenly this nothing beats a london was like this is this is the spirit that everything can can work towards um yeah love it so we're going to play the spot now i've had the longest day man you said you were going to come to me now you're telling me to come to you i'm not getting on a cycle cycle that's light work. 
Man's got around two miles from there just to get to training. Serious, bro? <laughs> two miles? Really? I have to run all the way from zone six with my school bag. Oh, you think that's tough? I have to run through Peckham. Wrong with Peckham. Oh, uh, yeah? Well, I gotta fight these ways, man, just to play. This is my multi purpose. Council funded, football, tennis, basketball, court, Fighting? You don't know the meaning of fighting. I can fight! My whole family! Before I even walk in the ring! That's nothing! In my family, if you're not in first place, and you're considered a failure! So, um, then following Nothing Beats a Londoner, um, you then move to the U.S. and you start to now play the global role, uh, working out of Portland. Uh, tell us about that move and, and what was the expectation that, that others had for you moving to Portland? Yeah, it was, it was a whirlwind. After working on Nike in a few markets to get that call, um, particularly after I just bought a house in London and we just mm. moved in to, to ask my husband, do you feel like going to Portland? He was like, sure. <laughs> uh, <laughs> bless him. But yeah, it was a, a rocky, it was a big, big challenge to kind of take on the, the big global role. Um, and in some ways, like it felt like a really big challenge and everything was about to change. But I think anyone who works has worked on Nike knows that nothing changes as well because Nike, the DNA of Nike exists in every brief that you take. Like if you know the athlete, like the, the rules are always the same, or at least the guidelines. Know the athlete, be in touch with sport, have a point of view on culture, and you can't go wrong. And and so even though every brief was changing and it was global briefs, like at the end of the day, and I think most creative directors will say this too, we're just recreating, just do it in fresh new ways. Um, and so that was the challenge again, was like new market, entire world. You know, how do we, how do I apply these learnings to, to, uh, yeah, a whole new um, challenge? So before we dive into 2020, I'm, I'm curious about how do, how, how do, how do you and the team sort of manage all of these sports internationally in terms of the, I mean, do you have, do you have planners who only work on basketball, ones that only work on cricket or only work on tennis or track and field? How do you how do you sort of create a team around multiple sports on a global level? Yeah, I I always try to have an expert in the really big categories like football and basketball, um, and I always try and spread the team so everyone has a passion or an experience in various sports. Um, but there are some sports where it's so intertwined with culture that uh, that you need someone who's in it. Um, like I've got Anthony Holton, who is an amazing planner, who knows basketball so well, and he played it growing up. and And I don't pretend to know basketball culture in the way that he ever could, so I always just go straight to him. Um, same with with my other planners, AJ and Becca. They have their you know sp- um, passions and interests as well that I just know to go to them for. We can't cover every sport, and that's when. Um, a, you, the planner, is their job to understand the, the, the category and the sport they're going into. But also it, it goes back to that, you know, um, walking stupid feeling of like there are planners all around the network and there are people around the network. There's an expert in every sport. 
So we constantly try and catch up with the planners all around the world um, and creatives and and connect with them and figure stuff out. And, I, and I'll also say I'm always trying to broaden that base um, and try and meet people in sports or in culture and just try and talk to people so that if I get a brief for some sport I've never heard of, I can go, I know this person has an interest in it. Um, but, yeah, trying trying to keep the the planner group, not just in my team in Portland, but, but around the world, knowing who loves what and who has a special interest really shortcuts the process. Yeah. So you, you arrive in Portland, I think it was, was it December of 2019? Yeah, that's it. So then everything goes to hell, right? So uh, in <laughs> yeah. terms of uh, 2020, uh, it goes to, it's, it starts slowly and then it just sort of builds. Everything stops. What are you guys thinking internally? Yeah. Uh, the same thing everyone else is thinking, gosh, what do we do? This is, this is crazy. Um, yeah, I, I landed in Portland in, in December and everything seemed normal. And then by early 2020, um, before the pandemic, it, you know, it started with Kobe uh, and Kobe's tragic passing. And from there, you know, the, everyone knows the rest of the story. Nike is a sports brand, but sports had stopped, you know, professional sports cancelled. For me, that was the moment where the pandemic really hit was when the NBA season was cancelled was when I realised we're all going home. So the big challenge from a planning perspective was how does a sports brand like Nike stay relevant in a world without sport? Because professional sports had stopped. You know, kids and athletes were stuck in their homes. Sports season cancelled. So how do we as a sports brand stay relevant and not just relevant, like authentic in those moments? Like what right does a brand like Nike have to show up in in a moment where things are really hard um so it was yeah it was a tough year and i i think we we used a lot of gut and empathy and instinct you know it was relying on those tools that we know what nike stands for and um actually there was a a, a deck that my planner anthony holton wrote which i think sticks with me when he he worked on the kobe stuff and he coined it emotional accuracy and I think that's a really nice way of, of thinking about the whole year of like, yes, we can have a point of view on culture and do all the right things as planners, but do we have emotional accuracy? So did um, you find that you were, you were um, creating, you were creating for what was happening in that moment or were you creating for what you thought might happen next? Both. Yeah, absolutely both. Um, because what was happening in that moment, we had to get work out quickly or at least we thought we did you know um and why, then why did also, why did you think you needed to get work out quickly uh because sport had stopped and we'd seen really inspirational stories of people doing sport at home i i, I can't remember where it was and a guy was running a marathon in his backyard yes that um, older guy yeah 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 and it's like that's that's where we can be natural like that's where we can show up and we can inspire everyone at home to to play inside and play for the world was the line. And, and that was Nike and that was Wyden and Kennedy. That was definitely both of us wanting to inspire in those moments and show how sport can't be stopped even in the darkest moments. Um, so that was that was a real, real rush to get to that and say the right thing, you know. And we'd never and by the way, we did we did have a lot of campaigns and ideas that we held back because it didn't feel like the right moment. Or we did, you know, have sort of points of views and and campaigns and thoughts that we were like, this isn't the right time. Um, and we were like, let's let's at least try and think about what feels 
not gross, but actually, you know, powerful. Um, so it was a lot of discussion around that. So it was in those moments when we were very um, topical and, and that sort of stuff. But then we also tried to plan for the year as best we could um, project like what the year might look like and knowing that that could change really quickly, but try and give at least a, a general structure um, to a year um, of comebacks. China was also a really big inspiration because obviously they, they'd experienced everything before us. So we, we also looked to them. We talked to our planners there. Um, and it wasn't, there was nothing, there, yeah, there was nothing smooth about the process. It really was just trying to have good conversations. Um, and the creatives are incredible, you know, like they, they found ways to say things in a fresh way. And so there wasn't, there's not really a template or any kind of secret. It was, yeah, lots of Zooms where we didn't know what we were doing and trying to create, you know, bring inspiration and angles and, and talks. But there wasn't, I don't even know if there was an official brief just because everything was so hectic. It was, you know, just staying close to the team and all credit to them. They, they found a way of saying something pretty powerful at that time. What happens after, what happens after Play and Because that was roughly March. We created like loose chapters um, around, you know, the, the idea of comebacks, which was born from an insight, I don't even know if you call it an insight, but a general theme and the strategy, overarching strategy for the year, which was like, sport. if sport has taught us anything, it's that we're in for a hell of a comeback. You know, like sport can't guide us through this year and sport, we don't know what's going, we can't overpromise sport, but it can certainly inspire us because there is proof in sport that we can come back. No one's ever come back from 3-1. Agonizing defeat. Down 5-1. We've all been underestimated and counted out. In those moments, we felt like it was over. It's not looking good for Rafa. But it's when we're given no chance that we somehow found that last bit of strength to keep fighting. And then we did what no one thought we could. Not even ourselves. came back from the impossible. From being broken. We found a way when it seemed hopeless. We came back when we should have been long forgotten. And we did it time and time again. Right now, we're fighting for something much bigger than a win or championship. But if we learn anything from sports, is that no matter how far down we may be, we are never too far down to come back. Everything we needed to do throughout this year could not be divisive. And Nike has been you know, provocative in that respect in the past, but that wasn't this year. This was about, you know, finding um, hope and optimism and all those those kind of words and, and bringing people together. And I know a lot of brands talked about togetherness and I think we tried to do it in a fresh way, but it was, you know, always through the, the spirit of a comeback in sport. And so, yeah, we created these chapters. Um, I think the first one was get people playing again. The second one was start inspiring a hope. You know, like 
you don't have to say we're coming back. I don't think we're ready for that. Like we're still, the world felt like it was still going through trauma. I mean, we all were. Um, so just inspire at, at this point because at first we play and and look after ourselves and find a way to keep our bodies moving in whatever way we possibly can, even that even that's in the smallest way. And then the next step is like from from the broad voice point of view, like let's start inspiring this hope of when we can come back. And then um, and, and then on top of COVID, uh, in, in terms of of culture, we have um, Black Lives Matter movement and social justice. Uh, so how did you deal with the COVID issues as well as the Black Lives Matter response? Yeah, it's, it's obviously a really sensitive topic to talk about, and it, it was some really raw and real meetings. Um, and I learned a lot. You know, I was pretty new to America and once again relied on on my team. Like I, I, one name that comes to my head is Eric Wade, um, who was a big voice during this time. And, and there are so many people I'm going to miss out. But um, it was important to listen to them and have these really open, somewhat uncomfortable conversations about what we could say and do. Um, I the, the campaign Don't Do It was was actually not something I, I worked on, but finding the right moment when it was most powerful was important. You know, one of the other sensitivities, of course, as you get as you get to maybe the second half of the year, there seems to be this anticipation of the election. Uh, yeah. In in addition to COVID, in addition to so issues of social justice, which were sort of combined with with the election, and and that seems to be the point when you can't stop sport really sort sort of finds its own voice. So you can't stop sport was something we established earlier on, but throughout the year, it it really grew into sort of life its own. And it and we wanted to say a lot of things in you know we wanted to talk about the idea of togetherness, which was split screen, you know, like we wanted a really anthemic, um, powerful piece. And so it, it worked in that respect. And then it also gave us permission and, and find a way to talk about Serena and Venus Williams, um, the voting campaign, which, you know, was, you can't stop our voice. Ever since we were little girls, you've compared us to each other. My game versus her game. My ranking versus her ranking. My titles versus her titles. My Grand Slams versus her Grand Slams. It's funny. You saw two tennis players trying to win a game. We saw two sisters changing it. We also had an LA spot, which talked about basketball. So, and this goes back to the chapters of like, we started with playing side play for the world, inspire a hope of a comeback, talking about comebacks, but then dimensionalizing that in, in communities and passion points throughout culture, um, rather than just being in that big lofty kind of global space. And so, yeah, you can't stop sport probably came into its own the second half of the year and, and we'd got to know it and we were familiar with kind of how, how it sort of functions and so we could flex it according to the moment and the, the brief. No one picks up a ball wanting to change the world. They want to escape it. They want to become part of something. That something could take them anywhere. They can make a friend, make the team, or make the league. 
They could break a record in Seattle, break some ankles in Brooklyn, or make a believer in San Juan. They could become a star, a superstar, a big donation, start a foundation, unite the nation star. They really could change the world. We don't have a ceiling on how much we can improve our community. Well, we don't have to wait until then. We can do it right now with a choice. Go out and vote. It starts with us as voters. And getting out and voting. Use your voice. Voting is power. It can make a difference. Right now, it's what's necessary. Because you don't need to be a star to have a voice. What can you share about uh, results in terms of 2020? What kind of a year did Nike have? I, I mean, I can say these results because they're all public. Uh, so so I, I should be fine here. But yeah, we Nike had a pretty incredible year. Um, so the if you look at it, the Nike share price dropped, I think, uh, about 38% from the beginning of 2020 um, to the March low. And from that low to the year end, it increased uh, 225%. Which is crazy, um, yeah. And then, yeah. by when it comes to sales, by by the last quarter of the year, Nike sales were exceeding 2019 sales by I think like nine percent or something. And and then profit, the story becomes even more attractive. And it, global earnings were up 36 percent versus 2019 in quarter ending November. So like the numbers are, are ridiculous, <laughs> really, in a year like 2020. And and of course, there are so many factors that contributed to that, particularly, you know, um, Nike shift to DTC and, and John Donahoe, like, you know, making it a far more digitally uh, centric company. Um, and so there are a lot of things that went into that. But no doubt that Earn Media and the campaigns, I think, were integral to that, um, that great, you know, upward trajectory for, for the brand. And so it was a comeback for Nike as well um, that I think the the work had a had a had a big role to play in. Paula Bloodworth, uh, global group strategy director on Nike at Widen and Kennedy in Portland. Thank you for your time. This has been great. Thank you so much for having me on. It was was really great to chat. Yeah, this is awesome. And um, I will uh, I will stay in contact with you because I'm always I'm always curious about how how Widen works because the outputs are are you know nine times out of ten they're just terrific and they inspire everybody in the industry. So. Uh, congratulations for being a part of a, you know, definitely a world-class team. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a hell of a year. Yeah, yeah it sure it's been has. Good to be part. And we'll see everybody in the next episode.